After months of talking, begging, and offering concessions, the Biden administration's dead-end strategy of appeasing right-wing Democrat Joe Manchin has gone up in flames as Manchin pulls the plug on the Build Back Better social programs. We'll also discuss the victory of Gabriel Boric over his fascist opponent in the Chilean presidential election, new revelations about the scale of civilian casualties from U.S. airstrikes, the spread of the Omicron variant, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's December 21st, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. A few programming notes during the holidays. We'll have all three of our shows this week, including this show, of course, our Wednesday show with Professor Richard Wolf and The Real Story. We're not going to hold a seminar this month due to the holidays, and we won't have programming next week so we can take a little time off. We're extremely proud to have had regular programming for you every single week for more than a year without fail since we launched the socialist program with your help. And we're taking a break next week. We appreciate your support so much, and it's you who has made this show possible. If you're listening or your friends and family are listening to the show and you can help keep us going, consider becoming a patron for yourself or for others this holiday season. So a full week this week, we're off next week, and then we'll be back with our regular shows on January 4th. And this week, Brian, we'll have the third installment of the new series, The Rise and Fall of the Soviet Union and the Lessons for Socialists, which I really highly encourage people to catch up on if you haven't been able to. Yes, Nicole, we have a really full week, an important week, a lot of important topics to discuss. And again, we will take off next week. It's our first break since we, as you mentioned, since we started the show. In your introduction, you said that Joe Manchin has you know, pulled the plug, basically, on the Build Back Better program. And when I look at the Wall Street Journal, the front page, Manchin is no on big spending package. Democrats' opposition quashes a key plank of Biden's agenda, spurs a push for alternatives. New York Times, Manchin says no, deserting Biden over prized bill. And as you mentioned, Nicole, in the beginning, yes, Joe Biden has met almost every week, perhaps many times on some weeks, with Joe Manchin behind closed doors allowing his opponents, allowing the enemies of the Build Back Better social programs to define the legislation, mainly by its price tag, that it's so expensive. It was 
$7 trillion, then $3.5 trillion, then $2 trillion, then $1.5 trillion. But people in the country only knew it by its price tag, while Biden met all the time behind closed doors with Manchin begging him, and Manchin kept getting Biden to whittle down his own program. And then, of course, the media calls Manchin and Kirsten Cinema the moderates when they're, you know, basically at war against the working class. If you're directly at war against social programs that would benefit poor people, working class people, young people, that makes you a moderate, meaning the other people are undoubtedly extremists. I mean, the whole way the language has been used and framed by the Biden administration, by the Democratic Party, one of the two ruling class parties, has helped sabotage this. But it's not really true that Manchin has pulled the plug. In fact, the bill has never gone to a vote. Like, why not put the bill, go back to the original bill, go back to the bill that would really make such a difference for tens of millions of working class and poor people, put it on the on the congressional agenda, have a vote for it, tell the masses of people, if you believe in these things, if you believe in child care assistance, if you believe in family medical leave, if you believe in child tax care credits, if you believe that working class youth should be able to go to college for free at community colleges, if you believe in these things, march on Washington. Why not just do that? Why not do that? Why not make it a struggle? Because right now, if the entire discourse, if the entire way this is being carried out is begging Joe Manchin, meanwhile, the left, the progressive forces, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, everybody on the left pretty much has been turned into being spectators. I mean, not exclusively. We've been very active in organizing, but people are sort of watching and waiting and hoping rather than fighting. I mean, if this was the attitude, the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 would have never been passed, nor would Medicare, which was also passed in 1964, or the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Back in 1935, when Roosevelt was able to push through the legislation creating Social Security and unemployment insurance, if everybody was just watching Roosevelt and hoping it all worked out, you know, none of that would have happened. All of it happened because people fought. As a matter of fact, Joe Biden is such a centrist, such a in the pocket of corporate America, in the pocket of Wall Street, he would never have even introduced this far-reaching reform package to begin with if it had not been for the struggles of the last decade, the Occupy movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of the support for the Bernie Sanders campaign, the alienation of young people who demanded change. I mean, that's why this bill was even on the table. And instead of, you know, us acting as spectators, we have to organize for it. So Manchin actually has not pulled the plug. All Joe Manchin did was he got on Fox News on a Sunday and contrary to what he had been telling Biden in private, he announced, no, I'm not going to pass this thing. Now, why should that be the final word? I mean, people say we live in a democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Why is one coal baron, one millionaire get on Fox News and announce that, you know, the fate of the nation has been sealed? I mean, that's not the way this should be approached. Esther, this is wildly popular, the provisions in this bill, but the Biden administration has not talked about it. 
Right. So this is obviously a slap in the face to Biden, who he's been meeting with, but also to the entire progressive movement to create these needed reforms and some relief to American working families. So, yes, as you mentioned, he went on Fox News Sunday and declared that he would not support this already eviscerated Build Back Better Act. And, you know, it has great benefits for working families like universal pre-K, child tax credit, child and elder care, and for combating the climate crisis. So he does this just after the nation's worst or one of the worst climate-induced tornadoes, flattened so much of Kentucky and six other states. And while the country is still not meeting the needs of the population during this pandemic and the economic crisis, you mentioned Manchin is a coal baron, and he is in effect allowing the right wing to seize the day and seize it with these like false set of talking points. We keep hearing them about inflation, this $2 trillion over 10 years adding to the so-called deficit when he and other hawks, including so many Democrats, just voted for what amounts to over $10 trillion over 10 years for the bloated and unaudited military-industrial complex. And, you know, we've been talking about this effort to create this Build Back Better Act from the start. And remember, this latest version of the bill at just $2 trillion is down from $3.5 trillion, and that is just over half of the $6 trillion that I believe Bernie Sanders initially calculated was needed for this legislation. And that's even less than the $10 trillion that climate experts said should be invested in addressing just the climate catastrophe. You know, and while right-wing extremists like Manchin supported this small infrastructure bill win for the Biden administration earlier this year, that bill only included $500 billion in new spending on items like roads and bridges. And we know that engineers who grade the U.S. crumbling infrastructure say that at least $6 trillion is needed just for that. You know, so this stance is not built on any type of reality for his West Virginia constituents or the situation at large. Um, the same engineers say that if the U.S. doesn't pay what they call an overdue infrastructure bill, which has been crumbling since the investments made during the Roosevelt administration you talked about in the 30s and 40s and then, you know, in the next decade after that, if we don't fix our crumbling infrastructure, they say that by 2039, the economy will lose $10 trillion in growth, Experts will decline by more than $2 trillion and that we will lose 3 million jobs. So if these people, these capitalists, are so concerned about the economy and the deficit and all that, they should like heed the research of these engineers. What I found was also interesting about this study released earlier this year by the engineers is that each household, when they fail to fix our infrastructure, make investments in the people, each household will bear about 3300 in hidden costs. That's what we bear when we don't have quality roads and bridges, infrastructure, you know, the types of things that other people in other countries take for granted. And finally, I'll say that we shouldn't forget that this latest attempt to kill these benefits for working people, this effort comes after the 
Build Back Better Act was already decoupled from this weak infrastructure bill. And that allowed someone like Manchin to kill it because the right wing wanted that infrastructure bill with all these benefits going to all these big corporations. But they don't want this bill, which we call kind of the human infrastructure bill. Right. And then families receiving the child tax credit, it's already cost them because they're receiving their last check right now. You know, it was hoped that this would pass before the end of the year and that child tax credit could continue. But now these families right here at the holidays, right at the end of the year, when they're dealing with, you know, school costs and and other types of things, they don't have that money to look forward to in January. And I would also say that when you look at the coverage of this, that what you hear about is the fact that, yes, you know, Schumer, the head of the Senate, you know, Democratic caucus, he's going to demand a vote in January so that, you know, Manchin has to actually stand on the floor and take a vote, you know, let him take a vote to deny these benefits to American families. But you also hear all these kind of these same right wing Democrats quoted more so in the corporate media saying that, okay, we need to find a compromise, which which sounds to me like they want to make it the bill even smaller, shrink it more, or go to Manchin's suggestion that, oh, I just want to, I'm only against this because they need to pick fewer programs and fund them more. But there's no guarantee that he'll even vote for the bill then. And he wants the Democrats to pit vital programs against each other and cut more from the programs and cut more from this bill that has already been eviscerated. I want to just repeat something I said in the beginning, and that is about mass struggle. Now, you can't snap your fingers and make mass struggle happen, but let's all of us remember what it was like about 18 months ago after George Floyd was killed when the uprising happened in Minneapolis and then spread around the country. And tens of millions of people participated in protests, half of them for the first time, according to surveys. There was so much mass protest in the streets at that time that Confederate monuments started coming down. City councils started discussing about significant reforms in police department financing. There was a major shift in the political climate. Now, that movement has ebbed. You know, you can't, a mass movement doesn't go and go and go. It has ebbs and flows. It gets bigger and gets smaller. And it's not, you know, under the jurisdiction or custody or leadership of any particular group. But the fact of the matter is, if there was large scale mass uprisings and protests demanding that this pass, Whatever Manchin says today can be reversed tomorrow. And even some of the Republicans who are voting as a bloc, under pressure, they would change too. I mean, again, during the Civil Rights Act, there was a a filibuster. It went on for so long. But finally, as a consequence of the the people made it clear that this bill was going to get passed no matter what. And cities were going up in rebellions in 1964. And that's why the Civil Rights Act was passed. Now, I was talking earlier yesterday to different organizations to talk about what needs to happen right now to be able to make this thing pass. Now, it's an uphill climb because of the way it's been handled, but it's not actually too late. It's a battle that's unfinished. And this has to be the approach that socialists take to all of these struggles. We're not here to simply critique the Democrats and say, ah, 
That proves how bad the Democrats are. Yeah, we know that the Democrats are a ruling class capitalist party, but that's not the end of the story. I'm hearing all sorts of silly commentary from people who are sort of pundits on the left saying, well, this is just what Joe Biden wanted. He didn't really care about it anyway, or you know, now it's over and this proves that we need a revolution. Okay, yeah, that's all true. We're all for revolution, no doubt about it. We need a new system. It's an imperative necessity. We say that on every show. But right now, two years free community college, that's achievable. Right now, childcare and universal pre-K for working families, that's achievable. Medicare expansion, that's achievable. The extended child tax credit, that's achievable. These things don't need a socialist revolution in order to be accomplished. And tens of millions of workers need these. Working families need these things. And if you win them, then the whole point is not to prove that capitalism works or that the Democrats are wonderful. It shows that the struggle produces results, and that makes people want to struggle more. The whole point of fighting for reforms is not to say, see, the system can work. The point is to show the power of the people, the power of the people to win anything. And Nicole, that's the point. We have an audio clip, I think, of how Joe Biden took the opposite approach. Instead of supporting the struggle of people, which obviously he does not, he was all about Joe Manchin. And his whole strategy was premised on recruiting this one or two, if you include Kirsten Cinema, into his camp. I, I think we have an audio clip where, where Biden actually talks about it. Yeah, this is Anderson Cooper asking President Biden in the CNN town hall in October about Medicare. And you should listen to, to President Biden's comments. One of the other things that Democrats are looking to do is to expand Medicare to include dental uh, vision uh, and hearing as well. Given all the negotiations that are going on, will all three of those still be covered? That's a reach. And the reason why it's a reach is not this. I think it's a good idea. And it's not that costly in relative terms, especially if we allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. But here's the thing. Mr. Manson is, uh, is, is opposed to that, as is, uh, um, I think, Senator Sinema is as opposed well. Opposed to all of them? Opposed to all three. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want, he says, he doesn't want to further burden Medicare so that because it will run out of its ability to maintain itself in X number of years. There's ways to fix that, but not interested in that part either. But look, Joe, Joe, Joe's not a bad guy. I mean, he's a friend. And he's always, at the end of the day, come around and voted. Uh, no, 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 no. Joe Manchin did not come around at the end of the day. And there's Biden actually giving to Anderson Cooper on CNN Joe Manchin's phony explanation for why he's against Medicare expansion. He said, Joe wants to make sure that Medicare remains well-funded. I mean, instead of denouncing Manchin, instead of calling on the people, instead of having mass mobilizations exposing Manchin, Joe Biden met privately with him endlessly and then, in a way, becomes his spokesperson. It also reminds me of what Barack Obama did, which and Biden was a part of that administration first in terms of when they were trying to pass what was known as Obamacare and they kept whittling it down and whittling it down, trying to get so-called Republican bipartisan support. And then they wound up passing a weakened bill that was really just 
an updated version of a a Republican plan to let private insurers get more people insured, you know, so that you had to pay a private insurer for insurance as opposed to having a public option and, and a robust public health system. And also remember that in terms of getting people to come to D.C. and having a mass movement behind your policies, that Obama, he basically shut down what was an unprecedented, like online grassroots organizing portion of his campaign. They had 13 million email addresses. They had, you know, all these people signed up to like mybarackobama.com or whatever. And that just was basically shut down. So any type of mass movement being attached to policies that people want was just kind of shut out of the picture. And that seems like Biden has done the same thing by not calling people to the Capitol to to support these needed reforms and by just shutting down those organizations like the Poor People's Campaign that are calling for that. Yeah. And I mean, look at what the result was for the Obama administration. They lost the midterm election, the 2010 midterm election in historic fashion, and not just to any Republican right winger, to this new right wing phenomenon called the Tea Party, this far right extreme right wing phenomenon. Because, you know, the Obama administration's retort to the opposition to Obamacare was like, oh, well, it's not that different. It's not that bad. You're, you're blowing this out of proportion. It's not going to change that much. And so, of course, the, it's impossible to galvanize substantial support, enough support to overcome the right wing when that's your messaging, when that's your message, which was essentially the messaging of the Biden administration, too. You know, to, to Brian's point, though, about how this could have gone differently and, and can actually still go differently if the right decisions are made. I mean, we know that mass pressure can affect and move even the most intransigent right-wing, quote-unquote, centrist politician, because that's what happened to Joe Biden himself. It's what happened to Biden himself. I mean, he went through his entire career on the right wing of the Democratic Party, firmly, firmly the right wing of the Democratic Party, was elected in the 1970s on an anti-school integration platform. Uh, He wrote the bankruptcy bill that was hugely beneficial to credit card corporations and other financial entities. He supported the anti-worker NAFTA free trade deal. You know, he he promised rich donors on, on the campaign trail, nothing will fundamentally change. And yet Biden actually had to propose the most sweeping set of reforms, concessions to the working class in the form of social programs that any president had since Lyndon Johnson in the Great Society programs in the 1960s. And the reason why he did that was not because he had some change of heart, right? There wasn't some dramatic divine intervention that changed Joe Biden's mind. And suddenly he became a different politician than who he was for the preceding, uh, you know, 40 years, 45 years. No, it was the mass struggle. It was the steady buildup of struggle and pressure and public consciousness about inequality and about the climate catastrophe. I mean, in a way, this goes all the way back to 2011 with the emergence of the Occupy movement, the 99% versus the 1%. You've also got the two Bernie Sanders campaigns in 2016 and 2020. More and more people, tens of millions of people, especially young people, deciding that they themselves are socialists. And then you had the second time around Sanders talking about the ruling class and the need to in part, expropriate that ruling class. And then you have the, again, especially youth-led climate change movement, the walkouts, growing public consciousness, 
and then of course you had the the uprising last summer the the historic uprising against racism and white supremacy the resurgence of the movement for black lives that took aim at another pillar of the capitalist system and perhaps the most essential pillar of the capitalist system in the United States white supremacy racial inequality and that also added to the strength of the overall progressive forces in society all of this made it clear that people were reaching a breaking point And so Biden knew that he had to adopt this program, but that phenomenon did not take place. That didn't repeat itself in the last six months as Manchin, Cinema, and others were adopting a completely intransigent position. They didn't feel that same heat, that same pressure that forced Biden to break from decades of his own political practice. Right. And it's not only Build Back Better that's been allowed to you know, be so eviscerated. But, you know, Biden's going back on so many of the promises he made on the campaign trail just to win some of those voters you're talking about, Walter, to, you know, win the the Bernie voters, the people who had basically turned against candidates like him. So, for example, even though it's not concluded in Build Back Better, there's no provision for wiping out or forgiving student loans. And that was a big part of what he said on the campaign trail. First, he said, oh, maybe 50,000, then maybe 10,000. And now he doesn't even talk about it. Like he, he's not going to forgive any student loans. And that was a big reason for many young people giving him another chance. Right. So, you know, Ilhan Omar tweeted, West Virginia is 50th in public health, 50th in childcare, 48th in employment, They support Build Back Better by a 43-point margin. This has nothing to do with his, meaning Manchin's, constituents. This is about the corruption and self-interest of a coal baron. And what we have witnessed, this is really like a real life experience of which there have been many in the recent years. But you had, I believe, that the triggering thing that moved everything to the left was the uprising against racism that was also against income inequality. It took the Bernie Sanders claim for the need for social change and brought it into living struggle against the ruling class. And whether the demands were exactly about this or that economic program, that doesn't matter. The ruling class felt threatened by that movement. I mean, let's not forget that in 107 cities, the police employed tear gas, pepper spray, and police attacks against demonstrators. Thousands of people were arrested. Several people were actually killed during this uprising against racism. And the ruling class felt it had been destabilized. And as a consequence, as Biden came in, this right-wing centrist Democrat, everything had shifted to the left for a moment. And what really shifted things back was that when Biden came in, the left forces in the country largely became spectators, watching, waiting, hoping something good would happen, or a certain smaller part of the left just spent all of its time on the sidelines, sort of denouncing everything that was happening in Congress as if nothing would ever matter. You know, we have to view all of these things as living struggles. And the living struggle has diminished over the past few months. 
that has allowed a situation where somebody like this retrograde, you know, coal baron, millionaire, Joe Manchin can turn against the people of West Virginia and deny them basic things that they, you know, desperately need because he doesn't feel the pressure. And Biden is not about to put the pressure. They're just going to do some hand wringing and say, oh, you know, he he betrayed the president. He went against his word. It's inexplicable. That's what the White House statement is said. It's not inexplicable. I mean, Joe Manchin's coffers have been filled up with huge donations from pharma, from coal, from big oil, from Wall Street. Same with Kirsten Cinema. It's not inexplicable, but they don't want to explain it because then they would have to explain what's wrong with the capitalist system and this particular form of governance. And as a consequence, people are just sort of hand-wringing and saying, why are the Democrats so weak? Why did Joe Manchin do this to us? That's not the way to look at it. We have to approach it, in fact, as a living struggle. Right. And this has happened before. In 2008, when the Barack Obama campaign had huge sweeping grassroots support because of the way Obama, the candidate, was talking. I mean, he was talking about huge change. He was talking about, you know, a lot of the things we've been talking about today, about, you know, getting rid of student loan debt, about having a full and vibrant and necessary healthcare system that wasn't going to go through the insurance companies to just make money. I mean, he talked about really wholesale change and people were excited about it. And when he got into office, you know, he actually had more latitude than Biden did. He had 59 senators who, you know, 57 Democrats and two independents who usually voted with the Democrats, not 50 like there are now. You know, that group at that point in Congress and Obama, they could have done everything we're talking about now. They could have passed like, you know, a real meaningful health care bill, as well as a lot of the things we're talking about and what's in the Build Back Better plan. But but it didn't happen. And I think the reasons why are the same way, right? People were so excited and they thought, well, well, Obama's in office. And so we did it. We're done. And so the movement died down. And we all know now what happened from there. Obamacare was passed. While it has made some improvements, especially with expanding Medicaid, it hasn't made meaningful, you know, really significant, meaningful differences for most people aside from having costs go up. And it certainly didn't circumvent the insurance companies and the profit that continues to be made off of our backs while we don't actually get enough health care. Let's turn to another another story. Walter, very big election in Chile. Again, 50 years ago, the left ruled the country politically, not militarily. The state apparatus was still in the hands of the capitalists and the capitalist state working with the CIA, with Nixon and Kissinger, overthrew the government of Salvador Allende and imposed a fascist or fascist-like regime on the Chilean people. Tens of thousands were killed. The majority of the parliament who were, you know, socialists were dispersed. But anyway, this was big what happened in Chile, although we have to put it also into a both a historical and political context. Yeah, that's right. The The left-wing candidate in the Chilean presidential election, Gabriel Boric, defeated 
far right, I would even say fascist contender Jose Antonio Cast by a convincing margin. The vote was 56% for Boric, the left winger, to 44% for Cast, the fascist. This election was especially important because it comes at a time when the country is drafting a new constitution. The constitutional convention was the result, was a victory of the 2019 uprising in October, this historic uprising against inequality and against the economic model that was imposed on the country by that 1973 CIA-backed coup that you were talking about, Brian. After that coup, which brought into power the fascist Pinochet regime, a military dictatorship, Chile was essentially used as a laboratory by far-right U.S. economists to impose what would become known as neoliberalism on the country, sort of the first experiment in this extreme cocktail of anti-worker, pro-rich economic measures that led to Chile becoming one of the most unequal countries in the world, one of the most expensive countries in Latin America, even though wages were very, very, very low, and a country where so many social services are non-existent and public services are privatized. Uh, and so the political program of Gabriel Boric represented, I think, a lot of the core demands of the uprising, for instance, the abolition of the privatized pension system, the nationalization of the country's lithium reserves, the expansion of social programs, uh, protection for equal rights for women and for LGBTQ people. And his candidacy attracted broad support in large part because of how odious his opponent was. Jose Antonio Cast is an open admirer of the Pinochet dictatorship. He is somebody who, while well, a member of his political party, the Republican Party, caused a controversy just a few weeks before the election because he said that because he said that women shouldn't be allowed to vote. He's an open anti-LGBTQ bigot. He supports the most extreme anti-worker economic policies. And he's an avowed opponent of the Chilean People's Uprising of 2019. So this was a decisive rejection of his political program by the Chilean people. What comes next, I think, is less clear. There's going to be, of course, a major struggle over what goes inside the new constitution. The Chilean people are continuing to mobilize, even though that's been made more difficult, substantially more difficult by the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's some questions about Boric too, right? I mean, Boric is a member of a coalition called Approved Dignity, which is essentially a reference to the referendum to create the new constitution. And in that coalition, there's Boric's party, which is called Social Convergence. There's this other collection of parties that are close allies of Boric called the Broad Front. And then they've made an alliance with the Communist Party, which is the largest single entity within that coalition. The coalition had a primary election to determine who their candidate would be. And Boric was not favored. It was actually quite a shock to almost all observers that Boric became the coalition's candidate because there was another candidate from the Communist Party who was much more popular. His name is Daniel Hadway, and he's the mayor of a, a subsection of Santiago, the capital city. Very, very popular, especially among the working class for his social programs implemented in his municipality and his overall program of dramatic transformation of the country in line with the uprising. 
a lot of analysts say that the reason why Boric became the presidential candidate and not Hadwaym was that many right-wing voters intervened in the left-wing primary, right? They voted in the left-wing primary to ensure that Hadway, the communist, was not the candidate, and they voted for Boric instead. And there are reasons why they would be more comfortable with Boric, not just his political party affiliation, but also the fact that, for instance, he does not support Venezuela. He does not support Cuba. He tends to back down from these sort of more controversial issues in Chilean politics and Latin American regional politics. So there are a lot of questions about exactly what direction he'll go. He also signed the pact with the establishment political parties to end the most intense period of the uprising at the conclusion of 2019. It was essentially a, an agreement that said, okay, we'll give you social peace, the ruling class, we'll give you social peace, but in return, you have to call for the convocation of the constituent convention. And that was something that a lot of the forces in the uprising did not agree with, that basic agreement that Boric was a personal signatory of. So remains to be seen, but certainly I think we can understand what happened on Sunday as a decisive rejection of fascism by the Chilean people and Chilean working class. Yeah, so we'll keep watching it. Again, there's all of these pushes and pulls, tug of wars, uh, largely manifesting themselves in the electoral arena throughout Latin America, Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, Argentina, Honduras, and on and on. Again, though, you can see that while there were victories by some of the right-wing forces during the past few years, the struggle also in Latin America is raging, and there's so much progressive pro-working class and pro-socialist sentiment in Latin America that this is one of the bright spots in global politics. I want to go on to another topic, not a bright spot. The New York Times, Esther, had a headline in the hard copy of the on the front page of the New York Times, so very prominent. It said, map by map, GOP erases black districts. And then the online version was something different. It was map by map, Republicans chip away at black Democrats' power. Now, that's really profoundly different headlines. But here's the story. And I think when you consider what black empowerment, the representation of African-American people in different places in government, the right to vote, the right to vote, it's always been an essential element of the struggle for justice in the United States. You know, by the turn of the century in 1900, 1910, after all of the efforts to disenfranchise the vote of black people in states where black people were either the majority or close to a majority, I mean, it was very powerful. In Mississippi and Alabama in 1910, the number of black people who were able to vote was 2%, 2%. The 1965 Voting Rights Act, again, coming on the heels or in the midst of the civil rights revolution that swept the South and the urban rebellions that were sweeping the North, uh, the Voting Rights Act was perhaps the most far-reaching piece of legislation in addition to the Civil Rights Act in American history. But map by map, Esther, the GOP is waging a war targeting Black America to wipe out, to eviscerate any power, authority, representation, or even the vote of Black Americans. 
Yeah, so the New York Times actually had uh, that same piece that you're talking about. What it did do, even though the headline was <laughs> edited and you know made more misleading, it further documented what we've been talking about on the show, and that is the increase of racial and political gerrymandering all around the country to create a lack of that same type of representation that you're talking about. And before I start, I talk more about the article, I just have to say that, you know, for people, many of the activists who've been marching in Washington, last week there was a huge outpouring, not just by the Poor People's Campaign, but a lot of the other kind of more traditional democratic ally groups, faith groups, people marching in Washington. What they're saying is that they can't believe that they are having to defend something that their parents or their grandparents fought for just 50 years ago. So the Voting Rights Act, that's not ancient history. That's in 1965. That's like a whole century after the Emancipation Proclamation in vast parts of the country. Black people could not vote. If they tried to vote, they were intimidated. They were harassed. They were assaulted. Some people were killed just to try to vote. And so the fact that people are in D.C., you know, marching for this right, I mean, it's infuriating to people. It's discouraging. It's making a lot of people really question and understand the limits of what we call bourgeois democracy or how much the Democratic Party won't even go to bat for the people who gave them this slim majority in the Congress, in the Senate, in the House, because if it was not for the black population, which is the main group that is really waging this push for the voting rights to be enacted on a federal level, the Democrats wouldn't even have the slim majority that they have, right? But I wanted to mention that first because I've been covering these activists here in D.C. and just the idea that they have to go back and fight for things that were already hard fought for, people died for, it's just opening people's eyes about the limits of what this system right now can offer. And that's not democracy, right? But anyway, the New York Times documented what we've been talking about, and that is in districts all across the country, Black officials, and this is from a very local level to national level, are being drawn out of their districts. And they're being placed in new districts where these Republican lawmakers are putting them in with a whole new constituency of like white rural voters. And the Times says that, and I'll quote, almost all of the affected lawmakers are Democrats and most of the map makers are white Republicans. The GOP is currently seeking to widen its advantage in states, including North Carolina, Ohio, Georgia, and Texas. And because Partisan gerrymandering has long been difficult to disentangle from racial gerrymandering. Proving the motive can be troublesome, but the effect remains the same. Less political power for communities of color. And it points out that this year's redistricting cycle is the first since the Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 and allowed jurisdictions with a history of voting discrimination to pass election laws and draw political maps without approval from the Justice Department. And so that's part of the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. 
It says further in the article that across the country, the precise number of elected officials of color who have been, had their districts changed in such ways is difficult to pinpoint. The New York Times identified more than two dozen of these officials, but there are probably significantly more in county and municipal elect districts. And whose seats are vulnerable or safe depends on a variety of factors, including the political environment at the time of the elections. So, Anyway, it goes on to detail some of the things that we've been talking about and the fact that the Times kind of minimizes the impact in the online version just goes hand in hand with how this whole process is being minimized here in Washington with the Democrats failing to make it a priority even for their own self-survival to pass federal voting legislation. And again, as we mentioned in the earlier story, the failure to draw the masses of people here to support what are needed changes. You know, they keep talking about defending our democracy, but they don't seem to think that the masses of people coming here and coming out in mass has anything to do with defending democracy. Yeah, the war against voting rights for black people has been in full swing. The Democrats have done essentially nothing effective to fight back against the war. And I do want, again, this is this is such an important issue. It's not about whether you believe that the elections are the path forward or so on and so forth. It's really about this basic issue in the United States, which has been the consistent, constant effort to marginalize and disenfranchise tens of millions of black people in America. It's been a core, like black political power has always been considered to be an essential threat to the racist ruling class in America. And every step forward has been met by resistance. And we have to, you know, like too many people don't know enough about U.S. history. You know, after the Civil War, there was a period of sort of an anti-racist wave that took part in northern cities where, you know, people had John Brown marches and there was sort of a wave of anti-racism. But the reactionaries pushed back. And then in 1876, with the election of Hayes, the deal was struck. Northern troops were removed from the South. The KKK took over the South. I mean, took it over. And so everything that had been won was largely undone. Not everything, but it was there was such pushback. And then you had the Plessy decision in 1896, and then apartheid was legal. That was the second wave of reaction against the verdict of the Civil War. Then in Washington, D.C., which was, you know, for a lot of historical reasons, had a very large black population and then became a majority black city. When Woodrow Wilson became president of the United States, he was elected in 1912. As soon as he came into office, he began a citywide purge of African-American federal workers in Washington. I mean, tens of thousands of people were impacted in Washington and around the country. And where the purges weren't fully executed, federal workplaces were resegregated. Then he had the Treasury Department and the post office, the postmaster general, resegregated those departments. That was in 1912. Black postal workers were fired all over the country. I mean, this is the push and pull of American politics. And at the center of reactionary politics 
has always been the effort to limit or to disenfranchise or to disempower the African-American community. And on the progressive side, the detonator for the movement for justice and all other derivative and subsidiary movements or spinoff movements was that same struggle for freedom and for equality. So I think that even though as socialists, we know that real change doesn't come through the capitalist system in elections, this issue is fundamental. Anyway, Esther, we'll give you the final word and then we're going to move to another topic. Yeah, I wanted to give an example of one district that received some media coverage. And last month, the Galveston County and the Republican-controlled county commissioners redrew their district lines to, in effect, eliminate the sole Black commissioner and the sole person of color, really, serving on the commission. And this is as that county, as many counties in Texas, only grew because of the growing population of Black and brown people in the state. And I should mention, in relationship to this, that Texas only grew in population because of the growing black and brown population. But Texas did not add one new black or brown representative. There was no additional district added even at the congressional level that would add additional representation to any of these districts. So I want to play an audio from this vote that happened last month. And this is going to feature... Stephen Holmes, who is the only black member of the commission, in effect, his district was eliminated. And at the meeting in November, a woman, and I I remember watching the video, this is a white resident of Galveston County, Hannah Melser spoke, and she said, quote, I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. What I do know as a woman born in the South and raised in the South is that this map, both of them are racist, and you know it. And the audio starts with Commissioner Stephen Holmes addressing this meeting. I want you to know, to all the members of the Commissioner's Court, we are not going to go quietly in the We are going to rage, rage, rage. So right after that, this commission takes the vote to redraw the district and which in a way that would most likely eliminate his seat. The history that you were talking about, Brian, is so important because it's really central to this whole other struggle that's going on over so-called critical race theory, which we know is really just about black history and American history. They don't want that history taught. You know, the Equal Justice Initiative did exhaustive research about the incredible barbaric violence that was inflicted upon the black population after the Emancipation Proclamation and during the so-called period of Reconstruction the massive resistance and violence that they faced by racists in the Confederate States and how people were killed, they were murdered precisely when they went to vote. 
precisely when they tried to vote. And, you know, it's almost become a cliche, like some black people don't even want to hear about it. They say, oh, you know, people die for the right to vote. It's almost like people don't want to hear that, but it's really true. And they didn't just die here and there. They were killed in mass. Dozens of people at one after one convention in New Orleans right now that I'm thinking about. So anyway, it's really connected to this larger struggle right now to kind of disremember American history and kind of create this false reality around a stolen election to take away other people's voting rights. Yeah. And one thing just to note, some of the statistics here, Texas population grew from 25 million to 29, almost 30 million since 2010. Right. And huge increases in the vote of people of color, black and Latino people. And as you said, Esther, no change whatsoever in terms of increased representation. On the contrary, this war against black and brown voting rights, but particularly black voting rights, is really, really having an impact. And again, Texas is going to be within about 20 years. The population is estimated in Texas to be 45 million. So going from 30 million to 45 million. And, you know, the largest black African-American population of any state in the country is in the state of Texas. Right. And so the consequences for Texas, for the country, for equality, for freedom, for justice It can't be minimized. We're going to keep following this, of course. Nicole, let's go on. We've been covering a series of articles, revelations, really, that have come out mainly through the New York Times, but there's even more now about U.S. war crimes committed against people in Iraq and Afghanistan elsewhere. But the shocking level, I mean, this isn't a brand new story for us on the socialist program or for us who have been involved in organizing against war and against colonialism and imperialism. But the facts here are staggering in terms of the level of criminality by these U.S. military interventions and occupations. And again, most of it we don't know about. The few that we do know about, for the most part, came from WikiLeaks. And of course, Julian Assange remains in prison as a consequence of that truth-telling. But let's go over what these new stories tell us. Thanks, Brian. This is from another New York Times article. They've been using FOIA requests, the Freedom of Information Act requests, over the last four or five years and are getting a lot of really, really useful and important information. A lot of it is compiled in this article that came out just a couple of days ago called Hidden Pentagon Records Reveal Patterns of Failure in Deadly Airstrikes. And I'm going to read from the very beginning of that article. Shortly before 3 a.m. on July 19, 2016, American Special Operations Forces bombed what they believed were three ISIS staging areas on the outskirts of Tokar, a riverside hamlet in northern Syria. They reported 85 fighters killed. In fact, they hit houses far from the front line where farmers, their families, and other local people sought nighttime sanctuary from bombing and gunfire. More than 120 villagers were killed. In early 2017 in Iraq, An American warplane struck a dark-colored vehicle, believed to be a car bomb, stopped at an intersection in the Wadi Hajar neighborhood of West Mosul. Actually, the car had been bearing not a bomb, but a man named Majid Mahmoud Ahmed, his wife, and their two children, who were fleeing the fighting nearby. They and three other civilians were killed. 
In November 2015, after observing a man dragging an unknown heavy object into an ISIS defensive fighting position, American forces struck a building in Ramadi, Iraq, and a military review found that the object was actually, quote, a person of small stature, unquote, a child who died in the strike. None of these deadly failures resulted in a finding of wrongdoing, unquote. So that's how the article starts. And I just, you know, when you're reading this article and when you're thinking about, you know, what these consequences are, I mean, the consequences we're talking about and the incidents that I just described, it's so hard, I think, for us as Americans to really envision this. But I really want listeners to think about this. Like, imagine being in your car. Imagine having driven away from something dangerous and you're in your car with your family. And instead of being able to drive away, you, you're you actually watching the sky, you know, nervous that something's going to happen, nervous that there's drones coming at you. And, and in fact, there are. And then you are killed. Like, that's the reality. That has been the reality in Syria and, and other places as well. And I think without really sitting and thinking about it, it's actually really hard for Americans to imagine it because so much of the military warfare is done by the U.S. military in other places and not here. All this information is from a set of confidential and hidden Pentagon assessments. The New York Times received more than 1,300 of these assessments, these reports of civilian casualties. It's less than half of the requested number. There were about 2,800, I think, reports and assessments of civilian casualties. So of those 1,300, more than 1,300 assessments that the New York Times successfully got copies of, only 216 of them were deemed, quote unquote, credible by the military, meaning, quote, more likely than not that the airstrike killed civilians. The you know set of documents they're looking at, again, more than 1,300 reports, meaning more than 1,300 you know, possible incidents of killing civilians. It's more than 5,400 pages. And very clearly, I mean, this shows really that there's a highly codified system of examining these civilian deaths. But, and I'm going to go back to the article, quote, fewer than 20 of these assessments dating to late 2014 have been made public. So again, out of 2,800 assessments, more than 1,300 have been successfully FOIA'd. Only 216 were deemed credible less than 20 of them have actually been made public. Going back to the article, quote, not a single record provided includes a finding of wrongdoing or of disciplinary action. Fewer than a dozen condolence payments were made, even though many survivors were left with disabilities requiring expensive medical care. Documented efforts to identify root causes or lessons learned are rare, unquote. And another main takeaway of the analysis is more clear and overwhelming evidence that the Pentagon's civilian death counts are extremely low and not accurate, and they are very much undercounted. Some incidents described in these documents show disgusting reactions of excitement as people behind computers push buttons to kill people, to kill civilians, women and children, and yet miss seeing the children present. For example, quote, in chat logs accompanying some assessments, soldiers can sound as if they are playing video games. In one case, expressing glee over getting to fire in an area ostensibly popping with ISIS fighters without spotting the children in their midst. Unquote. Some incidents are commanders appearing horrifyingly nonchalant about the life and death decisions they're making. For example, quote, in Mosul in 2016, three civilians were killed when a bomb aimed at one car instead struck three. And that was in part because the military official approving the strike had decided to save more precise weapons for other imminent strikes, unquote. So in that case, 
the lower level official, because a lot of these decisions are, you know, were later and later being made by lower and lower level officials said, well, you know, we might need these better missiles for other things. So, you know, we'll just we'll go ahead and try to kill people with this lower grade weapon and ended up killing civilians. And then, quote, in more than half of the cases deemed credible by the military, one or two civilians were killed entering the target area after a weapon was fired. Officials often describe these as awful but inescapable accidents. But while many might have been averted through additional precautions, widening the surveillance camera's field of view or deploying additional drones, the phenomenon continue unabated, unquote. So this issue was unexamined. And as I mentioned at the top of this, very few of these stories were ever released. And one more thing I think that's really important. In 2018, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the National Defense University studied all these documents together in aggregate. And one researcher involved, who was actually quoted by name, said his analysis was taken out of the final report. So when you put all this together, I mean, what you see is not just individual nonchalance, not just individual training to become killing machines and people pushing buttons to just go ahead and take people's lives, including that of children. But you also see the military, you know, really setting this up from the top. And when there's evidence that's very clearly suggesting, you know, that there are massive civilian casualties. But, you know, it's very clear that the military, again, from the top is deeply uninterested in in adjusting in fixing and changing and making any changes. And that is a real clear indictment of, you know, this shift into drone warfare only where, the U.S. public doesn't have to pay as much attention to what's going on. One thing that I think we should, in describing this and, and thinking about it and describing it, is to recognize that these are not actual mistakes. They're not actual mistakes. What's come out is revelations about how often this happened. But for the Pentagon, they knew they knew about this and they kept doing it and doing it and doing it, which shows that it's not a mistake. It's a calculation. It's a calculation that people probably won't find out. And if they do, if the deaths are Syrians or Iraqis or Somalis or Afghans or Yemenis, like it's not a political liability in the United States. The only political liability in the United States is if American soldiers are killed. And you mentioned, Nicole, just think, put yourself in the shoes of the people who are the victims. Just think of you're trying to get away from a dangerous place and then you're looking up at the sky and then a drone strikes you or your family. Well, these are drones operated by a foreign country. So just think about it. If it was Syrian drones in Chicago or San Francisco or Washington, D.C. or Russian or, or Chinese, and they had come into your country without consent of your government. And they were just deciding who was going to live and die. And then they're shooting missiles and they're killing whole families. And you think about that. How could you not hate the country that did this to you? And of course, when the United States talks about the war on terror, the U.S. is engaged in terrorism. This is terrorism when you're routinely killing civilians and you don't care because it's better for you politically to have them die than to have your own soldiers die in this illegal occupation. And I have to also say, I kind of can't stand the way the New York Times reporters are sort of talking about this, because there's not this sense of indignation and anger about what's going on. I mean, here's one of the paragraphs from the article. 
The air campaign represents a fundamental transformation of warfare that took shape in the final years of the Obama administration amid the deepening unpopularity of the forever wars that had claimed more than 6,000 American service members. The United States traded many of its boots on the ground for an arsenal of aircraft directed by controllers sitting at computers often thousands of miles away. President Barack Obama called it, quote, the most precise air campaign in history, close quote. This was the promise. America's extraordinary technology would allow the military to kill the right people while taking the greatest possible care not to harm the wrong ones. Well, we know from these reports that if they do it over and over and over again, and it's only through all of this investigative reporting that the New York Times learns of it, but the people who did it know about it, it's not a promise. It's a lie. It's not a promise that something better would happen. The whole thing is premised on a lie. And again, you think about North Korea is sanctioned, Iran is sanctioned, Venezuela is sanctioned, of course, Iraq still sanctioned. When you think of all of these countries that have been sanctioned because in the case of North Korea, because they started to build nuclear weapons, or in the case of Iran, because they had a nuclear program in 2005. And then here the U.S. commits all of these crimes routinely, and the ruling class, including the ruling class in uniform, knows about it, and they want it actually to be like this. The only thing they don't want is they don't want people to find out about it, which of course is why Julian Assange is in fact in prison. I want to pick up on a couple of things you were just saying. First of all, because I think, and we talked about this a little bit last week, Esther brought this up, you know, Assange got videos and logs and information um, a lot closer to when these things were actually happening. Right. And I think that does make a huge difference because while these, you know, these stories are incredibly important to look back and see what was going on in Syria, but to a certain extent, the American public, I think, thinks of this as, well, that's what happened during the Obama administration and the Trump administration, but, you know, that's kind of done with. It's not happening anymore. So, you know, I think that's partly why the New York Times was, you know, interested in and decided to go ahead and put these reports out. Because, you know, there's not as much threat of an anti-war movement, you know, being fomented after something like this. But, you know, the other thing I really wanted to emphasize is the way they're writing about it. I think you're exactly right. I mean, even from something as, you know, slightly nitpicky, I think that, you know, as I read this article, everything is called, it's always called a quote unquote civilian casualty incident. You know, this is the paper. They don't have to write about it in Pentagon legalese. They can say, you know, what really happened, like mass murder of women and children and families. Like that's what happened. It's not a civilian casualty incident. It's drones coming out of the sky, missiles coming out of the sky and bombing neighborhoods and bombing people's homes and, and people's cars and people's community centers. I mean, it's just outrageous that that's the way that they're talking about it. But even not just in these little phrases, but, you know, like you're saying, you know, they go on to say right around where you were reading from, you know, that they go immediately to quoting from the spokesperson for the U.S. Central Command. And he says, well, mistakes happen and we try to learn from these mistakes, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, they never push back on that or they, you know, they don't write about having pushed back on that. I mean, these documents are huge. They're showing, you know, what we know has been happening, but they're showing how huge this is. And yet 
you know, the only sort of conclusion is like, well, there's no way to determine the full toll. And this reporting quote offers the most sweeping and also the most granular portrait of how the air war was prosecuted and investigated, unquote. You know, it really doesn't make it super clear. Like, no, these weren't mistakes. If some of them were mistakes, okay, but they were never prosecuted. So like, clearly, you know, there's complete impunity for doing these things. Like, you know, there's no indignance. Doesn't help the reader see like, this is clearly a huge, disgusting problem. It also reminds me of the conversation we had after the revelations about plots to assassinate or kidnap Julian Assange, that when we really think about how the media works, the corporate media works in terms of sources and the Pentagon or whatever, that, you know, where did this information come from? Why does the New York Times have this all of a sudden, you know, from reporters who dutifully, you know, give the imperialist narrative about war as it's happening, you know, we have to really think about who they're trying to target, which is Mike Pompeo, who was the head of Department of State at the time. And, you know, there are a lot of people in the CIA and who don't want him to be successful to run for president. So it just reminds me of that conversation we had because, you know, like looking at these bylines, looking at the coverage, you know, why are these reporters writing about this now? Who are their sources? And it's because there's another agenda at play. And they're not just giving out this information because they are like being really good reporters. Yeah, I think that the New York Times writes these stories in this way in in order to signal that that they're a loyal opposition, that they retain their fundamental loyalty to the system, to the political elite, to the military industrial complex, the Pentagon generals. They're a loyal opposition and the criticisms that they raise are constructive criticisms, right? They're not challenging the fundamental premise of the war, the fundamental injustice of U.S. bombing campaigns in countries all across the planet. They're simply saying, well, you should maybe take some more care when you do it. You should implement some new targeting procedures because this really doesn't look good for us. This is kind of embarrassing, right? That's sort of the political essence of the New York Times investigations on these airstrikes. Now, it's good that this information information is coming to light, but it's always missing that fundamental piece of criticism of the war of aggression to begin with, that all of these crimes, all of these civilian casualties were needless because they took place in the context of a war of aggression waged by the United States, which it had no legal or political or moral right to wage. I mean, the the Nuremberg trials at the conclusion of World War II, where all the, the top brass of the Nazi regime, or at least some of the top brass of the Nazi regime, went on trial. The tribunal, the judges at the Nuremberg trials said that the crime of aggression, initiating a war of aggression, is the supreme international crime differing only from other war crimes and that it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. It contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. So all of these individual incidents of civilian casualties, the targeting of children and women and noncombatants, all of that is contained within this fundamental evil, this war of aggression. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. Let's go on. It's our Almost our last story. Our last story is going to be, of course, the Liberation News newsletter. But, you know, Omicron is spreading. The COVID has a new mutation. It was first detected in South Africa. South Africa reported it. Then there was a travel ban against South Africa, even though it had already spread. In the state of Ohio, 
The hospitals are being overwhelmed. Five of the largest hospitals put a full page ad asking people, please get vaccinated. We're becoming overwhelmed. I know a lot of people are continuing to purposely minimize the crisis. We hope that it's not a more lethal mutation, but it's very likely that as long as the disease keeps spreading, there will be more and more mutations. I'm going to turn it to you, Nicole, because you're talking to a friend who's visiting from Germany and you had an opportunity to kind of compare what's going on here to what's going on in Germany. I do have to say, though, and I think this maybe in our last few minutes should be a focus. My daughter was traveling. She was traveling with people who thought they had COVID. She couldn't get a rapid test. I mean, she's personally quarantining for a few days until she can get the test results from a test that was taken at a facility. It'll take another day or two for the results to come. I know teenagers here in the Washington area, some of the high schools, they have hundreds of kids who are now out with COVID. They can't find any rapid test. I mean, COVID isn't brand new. It's been here now almost two years. We had all of the issues in the beginning where there weren't masks, there weren't ventilators, hospital staff were using the same mask over and over again, you know, for a week at a time. And here we are two years later when testing would be so important, testing would be so important, and yet the tests aren't anywhere. In other places, they're free, they're accessible. Anyway, you had a chance, a real live living experience with a German friend. Let's just talk about your conversations. Yeah, really, really fascinating the difference, even with Angela Merkel, who was the center right conservative leader in Germany. You know, throughout the pandemic, she kept emphasizing, the friend of mine kept emphasizing how Merkel was really still following science, you know, following the most recent data that was out. And one of the most important elements that the United States that we've talked about so many times and that is so clear to so many of us that the United States has left out is testing. There's in so many places, it is so hard to find any kind of COVID test in Washington, D.C., which might have some of the best testing in the country, to be honest. There is no availability for rapid tests. You can get a PCR test, which is the most accurate test. But with the surge right now, you know, all those tests have to be sent to labs and labs when there's not a surge can take a day to turn around the test result. But when there is a surge can take three to five days, five to seven days. In D.C., we're definitely having a surge right now. And I think the most important thing to look at as well is where the surge is happening, because the numbers are huge for people who haven't been fully vaccinated in D.C. This was last week's data. This is the estimated seven day average of cases per 100,000 people. So if you're fully vaccinated, there's 12.23 cases per 100,000 as the seven day case rate as of December 13th. And if you're not fully vaccinated, so that includes people with one shot of one of the mRNA vaccines, it's 87.9 cases per 100,000 people. So that's a seven times higher rate for people who are not fully vaccinated versus people who are fully vaccinated. That's a, a huge, huge disparity. And when you look at the graphs, I mean, the rate from you know November to December, essentially, for people who are not fully vaccinated has gone, you know, skyrocketed. It's just gone from, you know, in the the 30s per 100,000 to in the 
you know, high 80s per 100,000. There's a lot of people who are getting sick who haven't been fully vaccinated. The mayor gave a report yesterday and is now, now, you know, a year and change, what is it, almost two years into the pandemic, is now going to be ordering more rapid tests so that they can be available, which is great because it's impossible to find them online. It's impossible to actually buy them. And when you can, they're extremely expensive. But in Berlin, again, I was talking to a friend who was visiting here from Berlin. In Berlin, during the height of the pandemic and, you know, whenever it's necessary, there are kiosks around every neighborhood. There are multiple kiosks in every neighborhood. You go, you don't have to make an appointment. You walk up, you stand in line, you get a rapid test, you get the results, and you walk away with a certificate on your phone that says you're COVID-free or you have COVID or whichever way. Yes, they're the rapid test. They're not as accurate as the PCRs, but they serve a very useful purpose when they're used en masse like this. So they are in Berlin required, again, during certain periods in the pandemic, they're required not only vaccine mandate, proof of vaccination, your ID, but also to have a certificate saying, I got tested, you know, an hour ago and I don't have COVID right now. You know, especially with this new variant, one thing that is becoming very clear is it is not only more transmissible, it is also possibly faster moving. So the inoculation time is a little bit faster than what we had seen of the three to five days that we were seeing with the Alpha and Delta variants and some of the other earlier variants. This one is, is seeming like it will likely be a little bit faster where you might get exposed and then actually start showing symptoms or be contagious within a day, two days, three days. So, you know, these fast tests can be extremely helpful. These can be, you know, if people were using these every day on their way into work. If people were using these you know, before the holidays, if these were in regular use, which they can be because they are in other places, even in other capitalist systems, they could be used in addition to the vaccine and would be incredibly helpful, especially with the vaccine hesitancy that's in this country. And yet, you know, this is something that's so, so easily within arm's reach and is just not something that, you know, that's being considered at most local levels and definitely not at the federal level right now. Maybe it should have been part of the defense budget. <laughs> that's that's actual defense. Testing against COVID, yeah. that's real defense. The quote-unquote defense budget is just the war budget. In New York City, workers, when you go into restaurants, workers really are checking your... I go to New York a lot, and people are checking before you come in and sit. You have to show that you have been vaccinated. The workers there are not unhappy about that. People are treating this as if it's the beginning of fascism. Some people are. But the workers are happy to know that if they're being surrounded by large numbers of people from the public, they're less likely to be seriously sick. And they're less likely, in many cases, to be infected. So I also can say that, you know, in Portugal and Spain, where most of the population, adult population is vaccinated, people are moving about freely. They're able to maintain cafe culture. People wear masks when they're walking around. They wear masks when you walk into a place. But there's a lot of a lot of freedom of movement. Same in China. China has there are lockdowns. There are temporary lockdowns when there's a surge or not even a surge, the beginning of any manifestation of covid but people in China are leading their lives. And of course, while we have 800,000 deaths in the United States as a result of failures from the government on so many levels by both parties, 
in China, 5,000 deaths and huge parts of the country are completely open for business. Not the borders. They're not letting people in, but people are able to go about their lives. Again, we hope that will continue in China or in other places. It might not. But one thing we know for sure is COVID is not going away right away. And so the efforts to do common sense health policy issues is more important now than ever because it can only get worse, especially with new mutations that are, you know, will be increasingly resistant to vaccines. You know, I wanted to add and about this whole topic and tie it back into what we first started talking about, and that is the right now this what we'll call a setback in terms of passing needed reforms, these build back better reforms, which will impact healthcare that have impacts on how healthy people are and what kind of health care they can receive. And so I wanted to draw our attention to a story that was breaking on Monday saying that Joe Manchin privately told several of his fellow Democrats that he thought parents would waste the monthly child tax credit on payments on drugs instead of for providing for their children. And that's based on sources familiar with the senator's comments. This is reported by Huffington Post. And so you have this being said privately while he talks publicly about inflation and the deficit. But this is a person who is denying families money that they will use for groceries based on surveys. Most of them are using it for groceries, for rent and mortgage to keep a roof over their head, which definitely impacts people during the pandemic for clothing, all these things that to keep families safe in their homes with food during a pandemic. And so this is just another example of uh, the same type of lack of policies, because we know that the pandemic aid, eviction moratorium, all the other things that we've been talking about that help keep people safe right now have ended. And by the way, before we move on to our our last story, there is new news coming out even as we're recording our show. I want to read a couple of sentences. It says, Senator Joe Manchin last week made the White House a concrete counteroffer for its spending bill, saying he would accept a $1.8 trillion package that included universal pre-kindergarten for 10 years, an expansion of Obamacare, and hundreds of billions of dollars to combat climate change, three people familiar with the matter said. But the West Virginia Democrats' counteroffer excluded an extension of the expanded child tax credit the administration has seen as a cornerstone of President Biden's economic legacy. Now, if this is true, and we don't know if it's true, I want to just venture a possible reason why that would be so important to Joe Manchin. The U.S. working class has very low-income workers. It has workers who are a little bit better off. It has workers who are doing pretty well. I mean, it's a stratified proletariat, stratified working class. We know there is something called the Great Resignation, where literally millions of workers have left the labor force, the workforce, in the last couple of years, at least temporarily, One, because maybe the two incomes they had in their family were sufficient to get by. They don't want to, you know, be in a situation where it's dangerous, there's children to take care of, et cetera, et cetera. And they have withdrawn themselves from the labor workforce. That means 
that there's a so-called labor shortage, which means that workers are competing against each other less than they would be normally when there's a large pool of unemployed people, what Marx called the reserve army of the unemployed, you know, desperate to get a job. So if there's less competition between workers because there's fewer people looking for work, that means the bosses have a situation where they actually have to pay more. They have to give people higher wages and wages have gone up. And lower income, lower wage workers have been able to also have some degree of upward mobility, at least in some parts of the labor force in the last period. If what Manchin is really objecting to is the tax credit that would allow some portion of the U.S. working class, perhaps the ones who have more savings, more money, to remain out of the labor force, out of the workforce, then that puts pressure such that it helps increase wages. And the main thing that the capitalist class doesn't want to have happen, the main reason they're so upset about inflation is that as prices go up, workers also demand higher wages. And if there are fewer workers competing for the same jobs, they have to give them the higher wages. And so what the capitalists are upset about at this moment is higher wages, and they want to drive wages down. But to drive wages down, you need a bigger pool of actively unemployed people looking for work. Depriving families of this child tax credit would do just that. All right. Before we go to our final story, I want to also mention that last week when we were talking against what had been going on in Kentucky, where the Kentucky governor, Matt Bevin, had systematically tried to deprive as many as a million Kentuckians of getting expanded Medicaid coverage. I wrongly attributed that to the current governor, Andy Bashir. Very, very sorry I made that factual error, and we wanted to let our audience know that we had made this mistake. We apologize for it. We try to be always factually accurate. Walter, final story quickly, Liberation News. What's the big stories? So one piece that I want to highlight here is titled Activists Speak Out in Louisiana as Support for ICE Detainee Hunger Strike Grows. This is a report from a very important struggle going on in Louisiana. Women held in ICE detention facilities have gone on hunger strike to protest the cruel, inhumane, degrading, illegal treatment that they've been subjected to by prison authorities. You can find out more about this struggle and how you can help by reading this piece, Activists Speak Out in Louisiana as Support for ICE Detainee Hunger Strike Grows. Members of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, including Gloria Lariva, have been helping to build public support for the struggle. They're playing an integral role in this movement, which is taking place both inside the prison walls and outside. And that struggle is continuing and continuing to grow. Another piece that I want to highlight is titled Massive New Union of Student Researchers at the University of California Wins Recognition. This is the largest group of workers in the United States to form a union in over a decade, 17,000 student researchers across the 10-campus University of California system. And finally, I want to highlight another article that's a report from a demonstration against 
budget cuts to school funding, a title no cuts to the classroom, San Francisco rally challenges school board's budget, union activists united with community members, with students, with parents to hold a major demonstration in recent days against the San Francisco school board's proposed budget that would significantly cut social services that students need. You can check out all of this and more at liberationnews.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter by clicking the link at the top. All right, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf, our weekly segment on the economy. On Thursday, we come back again. We're, we're going to continue our multi-part series on the rise and fall of the Soviet Union and lessons for socialists. Then next week, we're going to take a break, but we'll be back in the new year. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.